This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and their effects on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today on the show, we'll be talking to Richard Martin, president of Alcera Consulting located in Quebec in Canada. At Alcera Consulting, Richard helps business executives seeking to exploit change, maximize opportunity and minimize risk. Richard is also president of the Canadian Academy of Leadership and Development of Human Capital. And the mission of that organization is to bring Canadian expertise and know-how to leadership and development of human capital to leaders and executives of developing nations around the world. So Richard's activities at both Alcera and Canlead are founded on his over 20 years of experience as an infant, infant, infantry officer, excuse me, in the Canadian Armed Forces from about 1980, including operational command in Bosnia and staff appointments in Kuwait at the National Head Headquarters and the Directorate of Army Training. So welcome, Richard, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Delighted to have you. So, Richard, to kick off, uh, could you tell me a little bit about your career to date and how you went from being a young military cadet and officer around 1980 or so to being a business consultant in the 2020s? Well, uh, it's uh, I guess it's a, a bit of a meandering path, but I I enrolled in the Canadian Armed Forces in 1980. I went to the Royal Military College, Collège Militaire Royal de Saint-Jean, in Saint-Jean, Quebec, just south of Montreal. I, I was there for five years. So the first two years are sort of like a, equivalent to a, a community college, and then the last three years equivalent to a university degree. And I got a degree in business administration, uh, not particularly because I was interested in business at that time, but because uh, I considered it a, sort of like a general degree where it would be useful in general. But I had decided early on I wanted to be an infantry officer. So I was uh, I graduated in 1985, was commissioned uh, into my regiment. And then I served as an infantry officer for 21 years until my retirement in uh, May of uh, 2006. And as you correctly pointed out, uh, I, I had some tours in Bosnia, in Kuwait, just prior to the invasion of Kuwait, uh, of uh, Iraq in 2003. And I was also uh, I also served in Germany uh, and uh, various other po postings and positions. So then, when I retired in two thousand six, I worked for about two months for a defense contractor. But I was uh, I was really chomping at the bit to try something uh, my own business. So I decided to launch my own business. My first contract was with the defense contractor that had hired me to do uh, defense contract work uh, in simulation. But I decided to uh, to launch my business the summer of 2006, and uh, so that's where I launched Alcera Consulting. Eventually, incorporated, and that's uh, how I became a consultant. And um, uh, I mentored under Alan Weiss, who's also your mentor, I believe. Right. And uh, so everything I know about consulting, I learned from him and from members of his community. So I've been doing that now for close on, uh, I guess it'll be uh, 17 years this summer. And uh, I've worked uh, with uh, companies mainly in Canada, uh, companies and organizations. So I worked with the federal government in Canada, uh, also with some provincial level organizations, municipalities, private companies uh, in the insurance sector, and um, also in a couple of other private sectors. Uh, right now I'm doing some work with uh, the company based here in Montreal that builds uh, residential housing. So, uh, you know, high rise apartments, uh, university residences for students, and I'm helping them 
with their uh, project management uh, processes. I also did a master's in project management in the 90s when I was uh, serving at National Defense Headquarters in Ottawa. And I uh, became interested in that. And I occasionally teach uh, in the master's level course uh, at the University of Quebec and also undergrad in business strategy. And I do training and occasionally speaking, those kinds of things. But that's basically what it is that I do. And you captured it well in the intro where you uh, presented what, uh, what it is I do through uh, through Alcera and through CanLead. Okay, and CanLead, is CanLead a voluntary organization or is that a commercial organization? No, no, it's a, it's a, uh, incorporated under the Canada uh, Corporations Act. Uh, so uh, we've been in existence for about five years. Uh, and uh, I met back in 2017, uh, I, somebody, referred, somebody referred a gentleman to me uh, who is originally from Africa, and he was looking for somebody to help him with uh, business strategy development for his businesses in Africa. And we decided to launch the, the academy then. Uh, it's been a long drawn out process. Working with people in Africa is not easy. Uh, we primarily work uh, in Francophone Africa. So our biggest contacts right now and our biggest advancement, I, I would say, are in the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, where we have... Uh, a number of uh, proposals being worked through the uh, the machinery there, but it's uh, it's it's a very long and arduous process. Yeah, we can talk about that if you have any questions. <laughs> but my uh, partner is originally from uh, the DRC. He's been here in Canada for since the early '80s, uh, but uh, he has all the contacts over there. So what I bring to the to the the piece here is the the expertise and the ability to organize and bring together people, experts who can provide training and uh, developmental expertise, which is what they really need the most, is developing their human capital potential in Africa, in sub-Saharan sub Africa. What, what attracted you to the military in the first place? Was that a family thing? I know, you know my, my family is kind of, a lot of people have been in various arms of the military of different different countries, but and, it, and I almost did as well, but it stopped, it stopped at me. So what attracted you? Well, um, I was a little kid and like probably like most little boys, I played cowboys and Indians and soldiers and things like that. And being in Canada, you have snow banks and you can actually dig trenches in your yard and pretend you're in the trenches. So uh, but my father was in the army for 20 years in the Canadian army. He was in the service corps. So he was a clerk. And I have another brother who was a clerk <laughs> for 20 years. And then I went into the infantry. So, yeah, it is indeed a family thing. So I was born uh, in Quebec City, and my father was serving at that time. So I guess I grew up with it. But I got uh, I got another brother who never wanted to have anything to do with the military. So yeah. uh, so I, I guess we could say it is a military it is a family thing. But on the other hand, I was I was interested very early on in uh, military history and you know war movies and everything like that. And uh, like probably a lot of uh, young guys or young people who joined the military. There's a difference between the reality of being in the military and watching war movies and reading history books. Uh, but I got over that and I was able to have a career. So I like to say, you know, there's an old expression, you can take the man out of the army, but you can't take the army out of the man. And I'm 61 now. I joined when I was 18, but I really became interested at about the age of 15. I joined army cadets. I went to a summer camp. Uh, and uh, I quit Army Cadets because it wasn't military enough for me, if you can believe that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but when I did finally go to military college, um, it, it was like coming home. So for me, it was uh, the best thing that I could have done. And uh, I have no regrets. And 
about when I left, about what I did in my career. And it's still, uh, I guess, in a way, I'm still military to the bone. And that's never going to change. So your time in Bosnia, what were the most significant challenges you faced as a military commander and leader in, in Bosnia? Um, I guess, leading a, a peacekeeping force. And then maybe a follow-on question from that. Is is peacekeeping something that the mil- military train for specifically? Because it seems, you know, militaries are there for offense rather than peacekeeping. So is there a tension there? And what kind of challenges did you face? Um, well, I can answer the first question first, uh, the second question first. Peacekeeping is something that evolved during the, the Cold War as a means of, as a good friend of mine says, avoiding turning Canada into a radioactive briquette from one ocean to the other. So it was a way of containing, uh, of containing uh, conflicts, specifically uh, uh, decolonization conflicts in Asia and Africa and various other reasons, regions. So in order to be an effective peacekeeper, you have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to separate military forces. Uh, and, and that's the, the main point is to create an interpositional peacekeeping force to separate the forces so that they're not at each other's throats because military forces in contact will end up fighting. It's just because they're jockeying for position and everything. So the standard form of peacekeeping that evolved starting in the fifties was to keep military forces apart. In order to do that, you have to be militarily proficient. Uh, So that's why forces like the British armed forces, the Canadian armed forces, uh, Australia, uh, Uh, various European countries, uh, Ireland, uh, to a lesser extent, the United States, because they tend to be much more uh, shoot first, ask questions later type of approach. Uh, But that's got its advantages and disadvantages. Um, So that's really what it's about is you've got to be able to fight in order to keep the peace. Let's put it in in those simple terms. When I went to Bosnia in uh, in August of 1999, it was under the auspices of the uh, stabilization force, the NATO stabilization force. So we weren't wearing blue berets. We were wearing our normal uh, Canadian army kit, as was everybody else. It was uh, under a uh, a combined international uh, command structure with uh, an American leading the mission at the top. And there were, uh, we were within, uh, we were in Northwest Bosnia, but believe it or not, that was called Multinational Division Southwest. So that's your military logic for you. Uh, but uh, so we were in Northwest Bosnia in an area that was primarily um, uh, occupied, let's say, by Croats, but had been previously uh, one of the crown jewels of uh, the Serbian part of Bosnia. So the Serbs Is the area been, near uh, Banja Luka, is that kind of area? Yeah, Banja Luka, Bihać, uh, right to the Bihać pocket was part of our, our sector. I was in a town called Dervar, uh, so, uh, which had previously been like 98% Serb. And when I was there, it was like 80% or 85% Croat. So these Croats that were there had been shipped around all over the place. They were originally primarily from south, uh, from, uh, south of Sarajevo. Uh, and uh, so it was, uh, I think the biggest, the biggest challenge in terms of the peacekeeping part of it was to, to be impartial and to, uh, but also to be fair, but firm with primarily with the, in, in my location, it was the Croats who were the, uh, let's say the occupiers and, um, and, and to, uh, to 
you know, not take everything you hear first as as uh, evidence of something. So we had a saying, uh, first knowledge, first information is usually wrong, so don't overreact. So always verify before taking, uh, you know, major action. So that, I would say, is the, is the major uh, thing I had to deal with. And how do you tap into that experience of peacekeeping today uh, in your work, say, for, for lessons, for insights, for wisdom that's relevant to your activity, say, in consultancy or leadership at CanLead? Well, one of the things is leadership is, uh, what I like to say is leadership is 98% competency. Uh, you know, there's a belief that there's, a, you know, all these personality traits about leaders and everything. And I've seen all kinds of leaders, extreme introverts, extreme extroverts, uh, people in the middle, um, you know, people who are very expressive and get excited and other people who keep their cool. Uh, the primary thing, people will follow leaders who are effective, who get the, the job done. So if people think that they're going to be led in the proper manner towards their objectives and get what they need out of it, they will follow them. So that's number one. The The second part is, is, is exactly that, is never trust your first, the first information you hear. Always delve into it and look into, uh, go beyond appearances, go beyond the first thing you'll see or hear. Uh, because, you know, there's always two, two sides to a story. I would even say, you know, anybody who's raised kids would know it's the same thing, you know. There's always two sides to this to a story, and it's the same thing whether in peacekeeping or in a business. Uh, everybody's dealing with the same issues from that perspective. And when you transitioned from the armed forces in, into business, what were some of the cultural differences that you noticed and that you had to adapt to? Uh, the, the the first one was nobody shows up on time, <laughs> uh, and uh, and when I say that, I mean uh, semi jokingly, but. Uh, it's true. I mean, and people, you know, like, do we still have that meeting on this morning? Well, yeah, it's, I put it in my calendar three months ago. It's there. <laughs> I, you didn't tell me otherwise. So, uh, and, and that I think is probably one of the things that uh, differentiates the military from everybody else's timings, uh, because timings can mean the difference between life and death. And, um, you know, you're a logistician. Time, time is uh, of the essence, you know, it's the critical thing. So that what I would say is one of the big things. The other one is uh, trying to translate my experiences and my knowledge, my expertise into uh, things that uh, into uh, a form that would be understandable or readily understandable and that people can grab onto. I, I found that people, uh, you know, in business or in the in organizations in general, they have respect for the military, at least in in Canada and in you know most Western countries or Anglo-Saxon countries, um, the, but the and they they even find it fascinating in a certain extent. But at some point, you have to make that relationship and, and make it evident mm -hmm. uh, uh, for people. Was pricing your value a challenge? Um, yes, um, but right right from the beginning, I went with uh, the model of. Uh, following along from what I learned from Alan Weiss, which is value-based pricing, value-based fees. So, and I, I did go with, you know, uh, a bit of hourly fees and a bit of daily fees, but that was when I needed the money and it was, uh, you know, subcontract work and, and things like that. But it's, it's mainly just going based on what is the value that this client is getting out of it and finding a way to come to an agreement with the client about what proportion of that incremental value should be allocated to me. 
as a as a consultant. Ninety three point nine Dublin South FM. There's a recent uh, PwC uh, annual global CEO survey that's that's out relatively recently, and in it, I noticed about forty percent of CEOs surveyed said this is globally now said that their business models will not be economically viable within ten years if they continue on the path that they're on currently. So what do you see as the major strategic issues facing businesses in the coming years? Well, I think that the geopolitical situation is changing. I think um, we're still going to be a globalized world, uh, but we can no longer rely on certain partners (laughs) in the globalization space. And I'll just give you a concrete example. Obviously, it's relating to China. uh, But... um, and. One of the things everybody's realizing that China is not a fair player. They don't play fair. They steal, they spy, they copy. Uh, and on top of that, they can be, you know, they can change on a dime. Like they can, things can be going fine. And, you know, Xi Jinping decides something else and uh, the whole economy shuts down. So you're, you're, uh, and we saw that with the pandemic where they had a very extreme, uh, first they were very secretive and then they became very extreme with shutting everything down. And whether or not that that was a viable option, if you're relying on that for uh, you know your strategic supply chain, uh, that's going to be an issue. So I have a a client of mine who who does construction. Like I said, they're they're uh, real estate developers, and they were uh, ordering um, furniture and fixtures from Chinese manufacturers because of you know the the price was right, uh, except there were uh, major delivery issues and then quality issues. So they've decided to go with um, not necessarily a Canadian supplier, but a North American supplier because we have the the free trade agreement here in North America. So I think there's a lot of onshoring going on. We can see that certainly with electronics, with uh, things like that. So I think that's one of the major issues is uh, globalization is probably going to continue, but it's going to change. And what we've come to rely on in the last 20 or 25 years, you know, cheap labor in say China or whatever is going to change. Some of it is migrating already to say Southeast Asia and other jurisdictions, but a lot of it is coming back on onshore in Western Europe, in North America, I guess in Australia too, because simply because a lot of the suppliers we can't trust them, a lot of the the location. The second one is the global financial system, which I think is is very fragile. Uh, and I'm not an expert in uh, you know banking or finance or things like that, but I, I do have an interest in in economics and monetary economics. And from what I can tell, uh, there uh, it, it, it needs to be monitored, and it needs to be the risks, financial risks, needs to be hedged, as with any other risks. So that would be my two main things. You're in. You mentioned you're in uh, Quebec, and I know that you're you're fluent in both English and French. So, are you um, of both French Canadian and English Canadian heritage, or are you just French Canadian and you speak English? Well, I'm primarily French Canadian, but uh, I I grew up speaking both. So uh, I like to an, annoy uh, Quebec separatists by telling them I'm both, uh, <laughs> or <laughs> I, or I'm a, a but. Um, yeah, I really am both. Uh, I like to tell people I'm the most bilingual person I know, and sometimes it irritates people, but uh, I'm really good in French and I'm really good in English. <laughs> so let's put it that way. So I'm bicultural, bilingual, uh, whatever you want to call that. 
And how do French Canadians manifest and live their identity in Canada today? Are they generally comfortable in modern Canada? Like, I know there were a couple of referendums on independence. I think the last mm-hmm. one was 1995. We don't hear much about that anymore. So how, how is the, the French Canadian identity now in modern Canada? Well, I, I think it's um, it's mostly what I, I guess you could call realistic. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're next to... Uh, the population of Canada is now closing in on 40 million because of immigration. And, uh, you know, so there's about eight and a half million Quebecers, of which about 80% are French speaking. There are French speakers outside of, I'm actually not from Quebec. I'm a Franco-Ontarian, so I'm from uh, Eastern Ontario. Uh, So, and then there's uh, that huge uh, country to the south of us called the United States of America, which doesn't care (laughs) <laughs> really what language we speak as long as we speak English to them. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's a reality. When I was at military college, we used to have, uh, there was one week, all the official uh, announcements and everything, everything was officially in French. And then the next week it would switch to English and then it would come back to French. So it would alternate. But the joke was always, and this was in a primarily French Canadian, French speaking military college in the province of Quebec, in a French area in the province of Quebec. There are Anglophone areas in, in Quebec. And the joke was always, we have we have English week and we have bilingual week. So that's the reality. I mean, uh, English speakers don't tend uh, tend not to put a lot of effort into learning other languages. It's just the... But we see that, we see that everywhere. We see it in the UK, we see it in Ireland, Australia, everywhere. Yeah, well, I, I was... Uh, I was uh, talking to somebody who lives in the east of France, actually in Ferney Voltaire, which is uh, Voltaire's hometown. It's called Ferney Voltaire. And right near the border with Switzerland, and he works in uh, Geneva, and he says everything works in English now in Geneva. And he says, it's, it's just, you know, he says, it's hardly a Francophone city anymore. Yeah. So there's, you know, the vernacular, and then there's the international language. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here in Montreal, like the, the business I'm working with, they're all, bilingual or francophones but everything happens in english despite what the government says and despite you know you know if somebody speaks french nobody's going to get upset because they're all bilingual but the clients are all anglophone or almost so you just got to adjust to your market yeah yeah so um you're you're a successful person um but success as we know is not a not a straight line and everybody faces Mm -hmm. Setbacks in their in their career and in their life. So, mm-hmm. how do you approach setbacks, and what do you do? What do you think? What do you say to yourself to get yourself back on track? Well, I think you have to realize that if you don't try something, you won't fail. So, uh, setbacks are the sign that you're trying something. Uh, so, it's it's funny because just this morning I was listening to uh, I was I was anticipating that SpaceX would be launching their big rocket, uh, the Starship. And they halted it. Uh, they halted the launch sequence about 15 minutes before because of some kind of a technical issue. So they said, "Well, we're turning it into a what's called a wet dress rehearsal." So, uh, you know, th- th- in one sense they failed, but in another sense, if they hadn't tried, they wouldn't have been in that position. So that's mostly the way I see things. Is I don't beat myself up. I mean, like everybody else, you know, I I can go through a period of uh, you know where I'm. And angry or disappointed or or whatever, but you have to get over it and just uh, keep moving forward. And um, you know, it's it's like in in the military, you know, like in battle, you're gonna have you're gonna have uh, wins and losses in sports. You, you know, nobody has a hundred percent win percentage. I mean, it does happen in some cases, but it's very rare. 
whether it's soccer or football or baseball or hockey or whatever other sport. Uh, you, you just have to take uh, those as learning opportunities to say, okay, what did I do wrong? What did I do well? And, and keep moving forward. And uh, occasionally you reevaluate your goals. Was this a realistic goal to start off with? Or was I being uh, unrealistic? And you, you also have to look at the goal within the broader context of your life. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm happily married for 35 years. I've got a family. I've got a house. I've got three daughters. They've got boyfriends, et cetera. So, you know, life isn't that yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, perspective. So by, by way of uh, hobbies and interests, what kind of things do you like to do when you're not working? Um, well, when I'm not working is uh, it tends to blend in. I, I, I read a lot, as you probably know. I read a lot of history, science, uh, philosophy, just about any topic. Uh, I watch some videos on YouTube. I don't watch a lot of TV. I listen to some, if I'm in my car, I'll listen to some podcasts. Um, you know, if I got a, an hour and a half or two hours in the car, I'll listen to podcasts and stuff like that. Um, so, but it's mostly reading and, um, you know, that's pretty much it. Is there anything you're reading or listening to lately that you find inspiring that you'd recommend? Yeah, well, there's a, it's funny because, uh, well, the big thing, there's a couple of things right now is obviously is the, um, with the uh, chat GPT, you know, so yeah. I've been delving into AI and my thing is, you know, it, it's like everybody's going on, you know, like, oh, it's going to take over the world. And I, I just don't believe that it, it's, um, it's impressive. It's going to improve our productivity. So I read, I just recently read a book. I forget what the name of it is, but uh, maybe I can send you a link once this interview is done. But right now I'm reading a book called uh, something along the lines of uh, what is chat GPT and how does it work? It's written by Stephen Wolfram, who's a, uh, a computer scientist and an entrepreneur and everything. Sort of like Kurt, Ray Kurzweil, but without all the wonky stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and uh, he really delves into how it works. And when you start reading that, it's, it's not too technical, you know, but when you start reading that, you realize, well, you know, it's just basically, it's a machine. Okay. So I, I would recommend the, that book and the other book, uh, like I said, I've, I've forgotten the title, but the, that would be an interesting book to read just to, uh, just to uh, put a lot of the hype into context. And I, I, I find it hilarious that Elon Musk and many other AI researchers and entrepreneurs write a letter, an open letter to say, let's halt AI for six months. So that we can catch up. <laughs> exactly. You know, like it's talk about, you know, so it doesn't take over the world. But it's like I say, you know, the, the, these guys, some of them, they, they're very limited in, in their understanding of, they're extremely smart, but sometimes they lack common sense. Yeah, this, and, is, this is the thing of people who know more and more about less and less. There's very deep, but very narrow field of knowledge. But, it, but it's also, you know, they, they look at things through their own particular filter, you know, like, well, this is how the world works. Well, wait a second, you know, <laughs> there are other ways of seeing things. And uh, I just find that hilarious when, say, Elon Musk, all of his businesses are, uh, are uh, driven by artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning, whatever the heck you want to call it, top to bottom, everything, yeah. you know, whether it's this full self-driving, how they design things. His factories for Teslas are all based on robots. And, and like I like to say, you know, a hammer is artificial intelligence. Who the heck came up with the idea of a hammer? Well, that's, our, you know, that's a way of instantiating artificial intelligence. Anyway, 
Excellent. So how can how can listeners find out more about the services of Alcira and make contact with you if they wish to? Yeah, well, my uh, my website, which is uh, getting a bit out of date, but it's alcera.ca. So that's A-L-C-E-R-A dot C-A because we're in Canada. And I also have a blog, which is um, exploitingchange.com, all one word. And that's where I put my thoughts uh, occasionally. But I'm going to merge all that together uh, over the coming months. And then there's uh, canlead.org, which is our website. It's primarily in French because that's our primary market in Africa right now. But uh, canlead.org talks about our services and uh, uh, what it is that we do to uh, help develop leadership and uh, human capital in uh, developing countries. Excellent. Many, many thanks, Richard, uh, for being here with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks also to our listeners for tuning in again today. And be aware that if you enjoyed this episode, you can find the full series of over 120 episodes of Interlinks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, and other major podcast platforms. So until next time, keep well and stay safe.